I think it's a good term, even if people still think of gender on a more linear scale of being between points A and B on a line or rather M and F or outside of it entirely a gender. Um, it's easy to understand from the start, but it's like saying um, ocean and not conveying that it's a third of the planet and filled with uncountable drops. And agreed with Biff that it's the easiest way to say it, but it does have a lot more dimensions to it than that. Hi, and welcome to Non-Binary Gender, Scholarship and Experience. Today we're talking about the nature of our podcast subject. What does non-binary even mean? You just heard our professor, Dr. Brainer, reading for Splash, a panelist who preferred to express themselves through text rather than through speech. Splash was responding to a question we asked all of our panelists. What do you think of the term non-binary? Probably the first time I heard non-binary, yeah, I had heard genderqueer and gender fluid and other stuff like that beforehand. It was out there. It was just definitely not as publicized. I heard a lot of other terms beforehand, but non-binary is literally just, I feel like it's the most concise and the most easily understood without having to have a larger com like conversation around it. I, like, I, get, I get where uh, resistance to it comes from too, because like gender isn't even a binary. It's not, it's not even a spectrum. It's not, a, it's not a line that people are living along. It is an entire galaxy that has dimensions to it. Yeah, I would say something similar for sure. Like it's a term to me that is so simple in like explanation, but it can be just like as complex as you want it to, depending on your willingness to have that conversation and like the people that you're talking to or what you're reflecting on in that moment. It's just like, I don't identify as male. I don't identify as female. Um, and like in my experience, like I just want to be viewed as like a person. And so non-binary for me is something that has just been that like go-to label. One of our goals for this project was to discover the ground zero of the term non-binary. Many non-binary folks find labels helpful in negotiating and expressing their internal experience of gender in contemporary conversations about gender, much like what we just heard from our panel guests. However, medical institutions have a long and complicated history with labels. For sure. Like even when you go and look into the research and literature and even like popular literature, like articles and stuff like that, you'll find that there's kind of two camps of people when it comes to labels in medical institutions. One really looks at labels like gender dysphoria or going back a decade or so gender identity disorder as pathologizing gender nonconformity and like making it ill or wrong or bad to be not a man or a woman or not what your birth certificate says you are. There's also, though, a different camp that sort of views these labels and diagnoses as a helpful way for non-binary individuals to take advantage of the medical institutions that exist and get the kind of transition treatment that they want with the justification of essentially this diagnosis of feeling that their body does not fit with their gender identity. One of the sources that we looked at while doing our research was a letter to the editor written in 2010. So this is back before the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th edition, which introduced the term gender dysphoria. Back in 2010 and going back as far as about 2000, I think, Gender dysphoria was known as gender identity disorder. 
And at that point in time, when this letter was written, the criteria for gender identity disorder required that a patient express a desire to become a member of the opposite sex. Now, that might make you think, hold on, a third of trans people are non-binary, meaning that they do not desire to become a member of the quote-unquote opposite sex. Rather, they want to become something else entirely. And you might say that this diagnosis completely excludes those people and prevents them from getting the treatment that they want or need. If you were to say that, you would be entirely correct. And that's also what the authors of this letter to the editor were saying at this point in time. Fast forward three years later, they got what they wanted. The criteria for gender dysphoria, no longer called gender identity disorder, were revised to specify, albeit perhaps not as inclusively as it could, that the patient express a desire to be like the opposite gender or another gender entirely. I mean, you'd think they could just save some space, right? And just say another gender than the one assigned to them at birth or something like that, but. Right. <laughs> you would think, right? Because we know research articles already scalp you for the words that you need on your uh, on your articles, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Like if, if you've seen that book, the DSM-5, the thing is freaking massive. Like they totally could have cut a little bit of length by just simplifying that. But maybe that's what we'll see in the next update to the DSM-5. I hope so. Yeah. There really is this fixation with the binary when we're talking about non-binary people. And that even, I even think about the term non-binary itself because, you know, you see it a couple different ways. I mean, there's non-binary without a hyphen, right? Just N-O-N-B-I-N-A-R-M-Y. Yeah, and like then- <laughs> you see it in the title of the podcast. Exactly, yeah. But then there's also the term I see a lot on the internet, which is non-hyphen binary, which a lot of non-binary people have pointed out that that kind of places the emphasis back on the binary because it's like, you know, you start the word with non, sure, but then you start a new beginning within the word itself to like re-emphasize that you're still working with binary terms, you know? Yeah, definitely. This discussion of what the purpose of the term non-binary even is came up in another article. This one, fresh off the press, 2021. Um, And it exclusively uses the term non-binary to describe people who are not male or men or female or woman. And there's just this wonderful quote in this article. Non-binary people may have any number of relationships to gender, including, to name a few, hybridity, rejection, dynamism, insistence on a third option, subversion, or all of these. So what they're saying here is that to be non-binary is to either take the binary that is hegemonic in society and hybridize it into something of your own, or to reject it entirely, or to insist that there must be something outside of it because that's who you are, right? And all of these are just inherently anti-binary. And I feel like that doesn't really show up in our terminology talking about it. It really doesn't. And this is exactly why we've seen another term arise primarily on the internet, Um, but it is gaining some traction. And there are a lot of people who prefer it to non-binary as a term to describe themselves. And that term is NB, spelled E-N-B-Y, NB, or plural E-N-B-I-E-S, NBs. Obviously, it comes from the initialism of non-binary, which would be NB. But what it does is it entirely removes the word binary from the word to describe the people who are not of the binary. 
right? So it kind of shifts away from that binary focus, not entirely granted because it is still based on an initialism of non-binary, right? It's not just a different word entirely, but it does shift that focus. And it's also like concise and kind of cute. So I see why people like it. You know, I have been seeing NBs a lot on the internet, like that phrase, and I never really knew why it was spelled like that. I thought it was just a cute way to to do like NB, you know, but it really does make sense that non-binary people would want to like claim that term a little bit more, redirect it away from the binary. Yeah, for sure. And like, it's a no-brainer that when referring to people who are non-binary, we should be trying to get as far away from binary as possible, which the term non-binary just miserably fails at. And like, there really are all these details of non-binary identities that just get grossly oversimplified. And one of the other articles that we found from Dr. Robin Dembroff highlights this within the philosophical academic community. And they point out that they also have a tendency in this philosophy sphere to strictly speak in the binary. Dembroff raises two major problems with this. Properties of non-binary identities, such as the relationship between identity and expression, are not explained or understood. And two, because of this ignorance, a cycle of injustice is perpetuated in institutions like political, culture, etc. Because non-binary lives are not respected or recognized. Dembroff conducted interviews with genderqueer folks to understand what they have in common on a larger community scale. Notably, quote, within contemporary Western societies, end quote with attention to, quote, language, aesthetic expressions, values, and actions, end quote. It's interesting, too, that Dr. Dembroff is not only interviewing genderqueer folks, but Dembroff is themselves non-binary. Yeah, it really is cool to see that researchers and professors, we start to see more of this representation of non-binary people, like, doing the research in their own communities, you know, and, like, in their own, like, cultures, and rather than just seeing kind of this, like, outsider perspective looking into the genderqueer and non-binary community. Yeah, definitely. So this article was, what, 2019? And it's only really in these last few years that we've been starting to see a shift from, say, old cis white male anthropologists going into cultures that aren't their own and talking about how exotic people who aren't men and women are really shifting from that research to what some folks now are calling me-search or where these academics are looking at their own identities and communities and documenting them in a way that really carries that same academic rigor, but in a way that doesn't objectify them as like an exotic culture to be studied, but rather personifies them from within that community. In the study, Dembroff identified a few dominant ways of viewing non-binary gender and examined their shortfalls. These are the externalist and internalist approaches. An externalist approach to understanding genderqueer and non-binary people is pretty common in the media right now. This externalist approach views gender as nothing but its external presentation, such as through dress, body language, and speech. You know, like, you have to present androgynously to be considered non-binary or genderqueer. Dembroff believes this falls short of fully understanding what it means to be genderqueer. Another standalone approach that Dembroff criticizes is the internalist approach. A popular sentiment from the internalist approach is that identifying as genderqueer means a person is genderqueer, which leads to a circular argument of what it means to be genderqueer, or any gender inserted into this argument structure. It's interesting, too, to see these arguments play out in culture, because sure, we can hear about them in 
academic settings like this doctor of philosophy telling us about them in philosophical terms. And then you go to places such as the internet and see people battling these views out in the comment section of Reddit, for example, right? These are views that all sorts of people hold and hold very dearly. Whereas like one person will say that like you're not really non-binary or really trans or really anything like that unless you present according to a certain archetype, which really just fits with like how they view gender should be. And then on the other hand, you have people who say it doesn't matter what you do. Nothing, nothing external to you matters. Nothing that anyone can observe matters. The only way that you can know what your gender is, is to know what your gender is. And it does end up completely circular. So on the one hand, you end up with completely arbitrary lines as to what is or isn't non-binary. And on the other end, you end up with something completely circular, which at the end of the day is also completely arbitrary as to what someone's gender is. So Peyton, how does Dembroth suggest a solution to this problem of really being completely unable to even define non-binary gender? Dembroff's solution to these approaches is considering political features rather than external or internal alone, since political features combine these components. This is where the term critical gender kinds comes in. This framework assumes that non-binary folks, quote, collectively resist the assumption that men and women are discrete, exclusive, and exhaustive gender categories, end quote, from the internal desire to be categorized outside of this binary. Dembroff leaves the motivation or cause for this resistance out of their definition for critical gender kinds because this resistance is context-dependent. In contrast, non-critical gender kinds are gender kinds whose, quote, members collectively reinforce the dominant gender ideology in the society, end quote. Dembroff identifies two types of resistance against the gender binary, existential resistance and principled resistance. They assert that categorizing oneself as non-binary is an act of existential resistance. This means that someone resists the hegemony of the binary through a personal connection to the alternative mindset, that is, the non-binary mindset. Dembroff contrasts existential resistance from principled resistance, which is the use of practices that we see queer folks, allies, and activists utilizing often, such as attending rallies, donating to organizations that support trans rights, and voting for politicians who do the same. While any specific action is not a requirement of being non-binary, enacting both existential and principled resistance are essential to Dembroff's position on being genderqueer or non-binary. Dembroff also mentions that this definition might not be universally applied to claims that non-binary people existed in non-Western cultures where a binary view of gender was absent until it arrived with Western colonists. With no binary to resist, no one in these cultures was non-binary in the way we use the term today. We'll talk about these kinds of identities more in our next episode. So throughout this article, Dembroff switches between the terms non-binary and genderqueer. This reminds me a lot of the sentiment that Kai Rowan had when creating the non-binary flag in 2014. So all this went down on Tumblr, which we'll talk about a lot in a future episode about the internet. In this online environment, Kai and other non-binary folks wanted to create a flag that could be used alongside the genderqueer flag, but not by replacing the genderqueer flag entirely. Through community-generated voting processes, the current style of the non-binary pride flag was adopted. Yellow, white, purple, and black horizontal stripes. The internet really did create a lot of these huge symbols that we know for the non-binary community. And another one was International Non-Binary People's Day. International Non-Binary People's Day has been celebrated on July 14th each year since 2012. 
This date has been celebrated as a day dedicated to non-binary folks, their contributions to the world, and their issues, without lumping them in with men or women. I love that July 14th was the specific day that people chose for it, since it's the midpoint between International Men's Day and International Women's Day. Although I kind of hate it too, because that means it's androgyny and not non-binary, because we can't invent a third scale to the calendar. What if we're just trying to get it as far away as possible from both? There we go. So I think one of our big takeaways here is that non-binary folks have been using this terminology over the last several years to really try and differentiate themselves from the traditional binary view applied both to trans people and really to everyone in general. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that another big takeaway from this is that creating a symbol of non-binary pride in a day for non-binary celebration both embody the resistance that Dr. Robin Dumbroff identifies as central to non-binary gender. We'll leave you with those main points and see you next time, when we'll be talking about the history of non-binary gender and cultures around the world.